We are truly blessed as a congregation to have so many people who are willing to serve in various capacities. Um, you know, our church is pretty small. Uh, we're, a, we're a family-sized congregation. Um, but within that family, we have lots of willing men and women to serve in all kinds of functions. And I'm really grateful for that. I think it, I think it speaks well of the maturity within our congregation uh, that we have so many who are willing to step forward and serve, uh, who aren't here simply to be served, but to serve one another. And so I commend you all on that. Um, we are uh, in, the, in the middle of Jesus' last week uh, here on earth prior to the crucifixion, there to tail into Mark. This is one of my favorite sections of the Gospel of Mark, this one right here. As Jesus is being challenged by all of the various groups of people, uh, the, the kind of self-appointed and in some cases officially appointed leaders of the nation of Israel who are coming to find out about Jesus. And the plot is on. I mean, Jesus has got less than 48 hours before the cross. And this is kind of his last final shot at convincing the nation that the Messiah has come and that he is there among them. And if they would just turn and embrace him as Messiah... but they don't. And these leaders are going to come to Jesus and they're going to throw down the gauntlet and see if Jesus can rise to their standard and meet their challenges because they, are, they are, all think that they are so sophisticated, so smart, so wise that surely we can trap Jesus in what he says and we can either peel off some of his support or we can come up with a way a legitimate way to have him killed. Get rid of this troublemaker. You know, it's like that, it's like that great line um, uh, from history with Henry VIII. You know, his bishop would not grant him a divorce from his wife. And he, he, he says, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? You know, who will get rid of this guy? And they, they do, they kill him. Okay, and then Henry gets his divorce. Uh, uh, as he got, uh, I believe, five of uh, before he wound up with the last wife, okay? Uh, but there's kind of that feeling with reference to Jesus. Who is going to rid us of this turbulent Nazarene? Who will get rid of him? Who will find a way to bump him off, get him out of here? He's threatening our authority. He's challenging us and our right to rule over the temple and to tell people what to do religiously, and we need to get rid of him. And so the ruling council, the elders, and the chief priests, and the teachers of the law meet together, and they decide to send out some groups to see if they can trip up Jesus. And the first group they send out is the Herodians and the Pharisees. Uh, so if you have your Bible, pick up with me at uh, chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, this is a great setup. They've come up with just the most beautiful, wicked, nasty, barbed question they can come up with. And they've sent two groups of people, one of which Jesus is going to make mad, they think, with this question. Because at one end of the spectrum within Judaism, you've got the Herodians. And the Herodians are the group within Judaism that are the collaborators and the supporters of the Herods and of Roman rule. The ones who think that that you ought to pay taxes to Caesar because Caesar is the rightful, just, wonderful ruler from Rome over our people. The entire nation of Israel hates these guys. But nonetheless, they're, they're one group. At the other end of the spectrum, at the very far end, you've got the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the people who say, no, we ought to be an independent nation. We ought not pay taxes to Caesar. The fact that he has his picture on it as idolatry, the inscription that is on the coin is idolatrous. He is a pagan. Get him out of here. And the rulers of the nation send representatives from both of these groups out to talk to Jesus. And they ask him this question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus says yes, he make the Herodians happy and the Pharisees mad, along with the rest of the nation who hated the Romans. If he says no, he makes the Pharisees happy, the nation happy, and the Herodians and the Romans mad, and they have just cause then to kill him because he is inciting rebellion and treason against the Roman authorities. See how wicked this is? This is barbed. And they come to him like a used car salesman. They've just got grease and oil all over their words. You just almost hear it. Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men. I mean, just this is slick. They're greasing him up for slaughter, they think. Because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Boy, that's, that's, that's slick. They have buttered him up. They think. So should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? In other words, if you're really a man who pays no attention to the position and authority that people have, because that's the chief priests and elders' beef with him, is that he didn't pay attention to the fact that they were the ones in charge of the temple. And they had allowed uh, all of the money changing and selling of sacrificial animals and using the court of the Gentiles as a road to go on, and Jesus comes over and knocks over everything and prevents the pass-through through the court of the Gentiles. 
and challenged their authority and thrown down the gauntlet and said, I dare you to let this go on. We know you pay no attention to men or who, who they are, so let's move it up a budak in authority and let's go up to Caesar himself. And Jesus sees right through them, sees that they don't really believe what they're saying, but they're a, a hypocrite. And it's a Greek word that's great. It's a Greek word that tells, that's from the theater. Uh, it's one who answers out from under a mask. You know, you see the old theater masks, you know, the tragedy and comedy and whatever. And what you did in the ancient theater was you would hold a mask in front of your face. And you would answer out from under that mask. And so he knows they're just putting on a show for his benefit. And so he says, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius. The denarius is a coin that is worth about a day's wages. And it had, this, the ones that were current in Jesus' day, had an engraved picture of Caesar in profile on one side. And underneath, a, a inscription that read this way, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, that is Tiberius Caesar the Great. Son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it read, bore this inscription, Chief Priest. Chief Priest. In other words, Caesar is claiming to be the son of a god. Augustus Caesar, who was the grandson of Julius Caesar. And in Rome, they worshipped the Caesars, when, especially when they died, as gods. And it was considered part of the civil religion. And he says, I am Tiberius Caesar the Great, the son of the divine, that is the deity, Augustus Caesar. Were the Jews right in that this was an idolatrous claim? Yes, they were right. And the titles and words that are used on this coin are a claim to deity, to emperor worship. And Jesus says this, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. You know what Jesus did there in his answer? He said what was true, first of all, but he also succeeded in making everybody mad. <laughs> Okay, because what he's saying is this. This is Caesar's coinage. You're using it. You're using Caesar's coins indicates that you recognize his authority and his right to rule over you because he is the one to, and so therefore you owe taxes. If you use the money minted by the government under whose authority you live, then you are recognizing not only their authority, but the benefits of their rule. And so you cannot, on the one hand, utilize the money of the empire, and on the other, uh, seek not to pay the taxes that you owe as a result of the fact that you receive benefits from being part of that same empire. Should Christians pay their taxes? Yes. You have no biblical basis to not pay your taxes. None. 
You have to pay your taxes. Okay. You have to even pay your taxes if the ruler is unjust. Even if the ruler claims to be God, you have to pay your taxes. But give to God what is God's. In other words, Caesar is not right to claim divine honor for himself. And a ruler who goes about claiming to be a divine or messianic figure is an idolater. Give to Caesar what is his, but give to God what only is his. Did Caesar have the right to claim to be divine? No. Only God is to be worshipped. And so his answer just sets everybody back on their heels. Because Jesus has come up with a mediating position where they thought they had excluded all the options. He had to pick one or the other. And he successfully makes everybody mad, but they can't figure out how exactly they should pin that on him. And so the Sadducees come up with their question, and they think this is a real stumper. Let's look at it. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first one married and died without leaving any children, and the second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children, and last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, I want to teach you something. I had a... I had a professor in seminary, Daryl Bach, uh, one of the leading New Testament scholars in the entire world uh, for a New Testament introduction. And he wanted, to, he wanted to teach us the differences between all these groups that you see in the New Testament. And he taught us this one with reference to the Sadducees. And I promise you that once you hear this, you will never forget it. Okay? The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Therefore, they were sad, you see. <laughs> Yes, I know. It's awful, but you will not forget this, I promise you. You will always remember it, okay? Um, it's a terrible pun. But, um, but it's one that makes a serious point, all right? These guys did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they justified that belief on the basis of the fact that they only accepted the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as being authentic scripture. And they said, well, the resurrection is not mentioned in any of these books, and therefore there is no resurrection. And they also did not believe in the existence of angels. 
So Jesus gives this answer, which is staggering to them. They, they ask him this question, you know, based on the Old Testament law that Moses gave, that if you were a man and you died without children, that your brother... Now, how many of you ladies, if this was the situation, how many brothers you got? What are they like? <laughs> okay. I mean, seriously, you'd need to think this through a little more deeply, right? Um, uh, but when your brother, when, if, you're, if you died, then your brother was responsible to marry your wife. And then when you had a son, that son would be legally your heir and would carry on your family line so that no family line would be extinguished in Israel was the idea, but that there would always be a continuity of family line. Well, the Sadducees say, well, we got a really good situation here. There were seven brothers and one bride, you know, not like the, uh, not like the movie, uh, seven brides for seven brothers. This is seven brothers for one bride. And uh, she dies at the end, and it's probably blessing God uh, over that, <laughs> okay? Uh, but all seven brothers were married to her, and there was no child. So whose wife will she be in the resurrection, Jesus, since you believe in the resurrection? And Jesus says, are you not in error because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God? Um. Jesus addresses both issues, whose wife she will be and the reality of the resurrection itself. Jesus says that in the resurrection, men won't marry and women won't be given in marriage. Where do we get that custom of giving away the bride? It goes back a long way. Women are given in marriage, men marry. And he says they won't do that. Women, women won't be married and won't be given in marriage and men won't marry. Because they will be like the angels in heaven. Why do we get married? Because in a fallen world, there needs to be a way to prevent the human race from going extinct. That's at least one big reason. Okay? We also get married for love and affection and covenant and blessing and all of that. Okay? But mostly, and originally, because God created a human relationship for the propagation of the species. And in the resurrection, there is no longer a need for additional children to continue the human race. Why? Because everyone who has been resurrected is immortal and lives forever after that. And so there's no longer a need for marriage. And there's a total reordering of the creation. And so they are like the angels. In other words, not, that they, not in the fact that the angels don't marry either, but in the fact that they are immortal beings, that once they are created, do not die. And, you know, did you get, catch that part about the angels? They're like the angels, who you also don't believe in. Stick. <laughs> okay? I mean, he's getting his digs in on these guys while he's giving the answer. And... Then he says, and remember what the scripture says. You only believe in the first five books of Moses? Fine. I'll quote one that you believe in. From Exodus chapter 3 at the incident of the burning bush, where God appears in the bush that is not burned up, and Moses goes, I must go and see why this bush is burning and is not consumed. And when he is there, he hears, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. 
And he says, who are you? And he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Currently, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Present tense. How is that possible? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they are dead, yet live. How do they live? They are resurrected. They possess eternal life. You are badly mistaken. In fact, it literally reads, you are self-deceived. You don't even read the book that you claim to be Scripture. Very carefully. So, next comes a teacher of the law, and he's been listening to all this dialogue, and they're standing there in the temple court, and the teacher of the law hears Jesus, and he goes, well, I've got one. I've got a good one. How about this? Let's take a look at it. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which one is most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Traditionally, the teachers of the law had come up with 613 commandments, and they divided them they gone through the entire law of Moses and come up with the list, and they said that 365 of them were negative. That is, do not do this. And 248 of them were positive. That is, do this. Uh, but there was consistent debate over which ones were most important. For example, is it worse to break the Sabbath or to commit murder? To be a coveter or to be disobedient to your parents? To cook a young goat in its mother's milk or to plant two kinds of crops in the same dirt mound? Which ones are most important? And where do they fall and how do you know? And then they also tried to, what they also tried to do, and, and you read constant debate about this as you read the rabbinic literature, is to summarize the law, boil it down to one command. If I can't remember all 613, how am I going to know whether or not I'm obeying God? Because in this time, people don't have what you and I are blessed to have, which is a personal copy of the Scriptures. So how do you remember all that? Because if obeying God is important, and it is, then surely there's got to be a way to boil this down to where we can get our arms around it. And so the rabbis and teachers tried to come up with a way to do that, to put it in people's hands where they could get hold of it. And so he asked Jesus, this is a good question, Jesus. How about this one? What's the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus starts off with the great Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The word Shema means hear. Listen, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. In other words, the Lord is utterly unique. There is no other being in all the world like unto him. And because of that, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, everything you got. And if you want to, I'll give you one better. The second greatest commandment, if you want to summarize all the law and the prophets, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you may have noticed, if you look at the front of the bulletin, that we have that displayed in our church logo. Love God, or love God and love others. So you get both the vertical aspect of your spiritual life and the horizontal aspect of your spiritual life. And then there's four pictures around it that depict worshiping God and sharing the gospel and serving others by washing their feet and walking on a daily basis with God that when you rise up and when you lay down and when you walk along the road that you are walking by faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Why did we come up with that? Where did we come up with that? Right here is where we come up with that. Why did we pick those two to be at the center of the cross? Because Jesus says they're at the center of what it means to be in right relationship with God, to love him and love others. He also gives this rabbi, this teacher of the law, a response that's designed to provoke a question because when the guy hears Jesus' response, he says, you've, I think you've got it right. And Jesus says, you know what? You're not far from the kingdom of God. And it's designed to draw that guy in. Really? I wonder what he meant by that. After that, nobody dares ask him any more questions. Nobody wants to stand up and look stupid in front of a crowd. And everybody thus to, the, to this point has been either exposed as having bad motives in the, in the question that they ask, or has been given an answer which removes all doubt as to the authority of Jesus. So no one dares to ask any more questions. So he starts teaching. He says this, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, how is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ is son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury and many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. 
Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Uh, Jesus begins his teaching here by challenging directly. In other words, you want to play the question game? I got a question. How come the teachers of the law teach that the Messiah is the son of David? When David himself, in Psalm 110, if you want to look it up, says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Do you get Jesus' question? It's true that the Messiah is son of David. We know that. But if David calls him Lord, he must be greater in some way than David. This is one of the passages, by the way, that pointed the early church fathers toward formulating the doctrine of the Trinity. The idea that Jesus, when he came, was not simply a man, was not simply a prophet of God, greatly used of God, but was someone greater than a mere man, who is also God. And it's designed to provoke that thought in people's minds. If David refers to the Lord and my Lord, Equal term. For the one who is his son, then who is he? Not simply the son of David, but also the son of God. And they didn't get it. See, the teachers of the law were wrong. They thought that since Jesus was merely the human son of David, according to their thinking, that their authority exceeded his. But what he is pointing out to them is that he is God. Therefore, he is the one to whom the temple worship is given. Therefore, his authority is greater than theirs. One who serves at the temple is less than one who the temple is created for. Amen? And the one for whom the temple was created is standing right in it. Does he have authority to tell them what to do and where they can take their money changers and go? Yes. Because he is great enough that he is greater even than David. Therefore, he's greater than them because he is God in the flesh. And then he warns the crowd against the teachers of the law. Technically, these men were not paid. According to the law, these, these guys were not to receive a salary, but there were a lot of abuses. And some people actually got into this because it was a pretty good gig. Even though it was unpaid, you, you got a lot of bennies associated with it. And so you would impress people with your piety by making these long-winded prayers. You know, you'd bow, oh, let's bow your heads. And you know, oh boy, we're going to be here for 40 minutes listening to this dude. Okay, isn't he pious? And they would impress people with that. But they would go about in flowing robes so that everyone would recognize, ah, there comes the rabbi, the teacher. But they would impress people with their piety so that they could get the benefits. 
the good seats at banquets, to be greeted in the marketplace. Ah, Rabbi. They would, they relied on people's hospitality and they would actually take advantage of poor widows by moving in with them and utilizing all of their resources until these poor ladies had nothing left. They had consumed everything. And then, oh, well, I guess we need to find somewhere else to live. Nothing more to eat here. Like grasshoppers come in and eat everything that's green, and then they fly off to the next place. And he says, these men are a plague on the nation, not a benefit. Are those kind of people still around, by the way? Turn on religious television. A lot of them are there. Okay, guys who love to be greeted as bishop or pastor or whatever and are wearing more in jewelry around their wrists than you have clothes in your closet and more value in their shoes than you have in your car. And many of them, at least one guy went to prison a few years ago because he would time his appeal letters to go out on the very day that Social Security checks came out in the local area so that all these old widows would send him the money. Are these kind of people still around? Yes. Jesus says, watch out for these kind of guys. And then he concludes by drawing a contrast between this one little widow and these religious teachers. And he says, look, you see this widow over here? And at this time, he's in probably the court of women where there were 13 big uh, trumpet-shaped things. And uh, they were made of metal. And when you went in, you would drop your money in. And, of course, based on the sound, you could tell how much people were giving, right? We will not be doing that here. <laughs> All right? Just to be clear. Um, because according to the scriptures, each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, right? But they had these things made of metal, and you would, you know, you could, you know, you get come in with your sack full of coins or whatever. Oh, look at him. He's pious. He's generous, you know. And then this poor widow comes in with these two little uh, lepton, these two little coins that are worth about one sixty-fourth of together of a day's wages. We don't have a coin that small. And she puts these in knowing that there is nothing else to put in. There's nothing else to buy food with. There's nothing else. But she trusts God, and she puts it all in. And Jesus says, this woman put it all in. And therefore, she gave more than all these wealthy people, because they gave over what was left over. And she gave out of all she had. And God honors the heart more than the amount. Um. She had inward piety, which motivated her to give everything she had. These other folks had 
outward piety, but inward greed. Now, there's a lot of content in this text. In fact, I could have taken each little chunk of this text and devoted one whole sermon to it, okay? Uh, Because there's just great stuff in here. But I just want to do three things. How does this text apply to us? And any one of these things, if you really allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, will change your life. Any one of these. So pick one. Pick all three. Pick two. Pick one. That you're going to obey and apply and, and ask the Holy Spirit to change you on, okay? First question, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? All these religious types come to Jesus, and they're trying to find out whose side he is on. Are you a Herodian or are you a Pharisee? Are you a Sadducee? Are you a great teacher of the law? Who are you? What are you here for? And they never stop to ask the most important question, which is this. Am I on Jesus' side? Not is he on mine? Because that's the one that matters, ultimately. Because Jesus is the son of David, but he is also the one whom even David called Lord. He is the son of God. And the central question of all of human history is this one. Are you going to be the kind of person who says to God, thy will be done? Or are you going to be the kind of person to whom God says, thy will be done? Because that is the dividing point in all of, of all of humanity. Either you will have your will or you will follow his. And if there's anybody here today who has never said to God, who has never bowed their knee and bowed their heart and said, I will not continue going my own way. I am going to stop living in rebellion against you and I will follow. Then today is the day of salvation. Because Jesus Christ came not just into the world to teach some good things and to heal some people. He came as the Savior and the sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. And if He is not your Savior, then you are among those who have no hope. And you will die and Jesus will give you what you have wanted your entire life, which is a life free from Him. And you will get it for all eternity in the place of separation from God that the Bible calls hell. And you might think that that is a great gig. But I'll assure you that it is not where you would like to be. Because everything that is good and enjoyable and pleasurable and fun and joyful about this life comes from God. And so to be in the absence of God is to be cut off from everything that makes life worth living. And yet you will continue to live for eternity. And Jesus calls us all to be on his side. Follow him and obey him. And to trust in the sacrifice that he makes on the cross for all of us. And in the fact that his sacrifice was demonstrably paid, the penalty for sin in the resurrection. To believe in that and to follow him. 
Let me ask another one. Are you really a lover of your neighbor or not? Jesus said the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So let me ask you, do you treat people with grace or as you think they deserve? Are you an angry person or a patient person? When someone insults you or betrays you or mistreats you, how do you respond? When your boss is unreasonable or your spouse doesn't meet your needs or your expectations for how they should behave, how do you behave? When your children are flagrantly disobedient, I know no one else's children is ever flagrantly disobedient other than mine, okay? But when your child does that, how do you respond to your children? What comes out of your mouth? Let me ask another one, pointy one. If you really believe the gospel, that there are not good people and bad people, but there are simply bad people and Jesus, and that Jesus in his death offers salvation to every bad person. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection to to new life, offers new life to people. And you say that you love your neighbor, how many of them have you shared the gospel with? If the answer is zero, may I suggest to you that you don't really love them very much? Last question. Jesus said that the greatest command was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. If you are really honest, and I mean really honest with yourself, that person that you are when nobody's around and the lights are off and the TV's not on and you are alone with the Lord, are you really loving toward God? This widow was willing to sacrifice everything she had to demonstrate her love for her Lord. How about you? How about me? Are you like the widow or are you more like the teachers of the law who would like to have everybody think you holy rather than actually be holy? Do you really love God or are you just hoping to be a reasonably good person who lives a reasonably good life and hope that, never, that God never asks you to do anything too very hard? Do you love God or is he an eternal insurance policy to keep you out of hell and a cosmic genie to meet all your needs in the here and now? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? and soul, and mind, and strength. Do 